this morning, I think. And uh, whenever you travel with kids, it's always an adventure. So I'm sure they would appreciate your prayers. You can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Let's see how far we can get today. Romans chapter 8. I want to pick up where we left off last week. And I'll begin reading in verse 18 and just read down through 27. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from, the bond, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then this will be our text for today, verse 23. And not only the creation, but also ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, just a quick little review here. We've been looking at these three groans for glory, as they're mentioned there, the groan of creation, the groan of the believer, and also the groan of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And we looked last week at the creation and how it's groaning to be freed from the futility of sin that it was uh, captured by in the curse. And we looked at uh, verse 19 creation's longing uh, for this, this uh, revealing of the sons of God because when the sons of God are revealed, when we reach our glorified state, the creation will reach its glorified state. Okay, and so that's what that is, is all about. And so we, we talked about the creation longing to be um, released from the curse and also that it was subjected, not willingly it says, but by God. In other words, God put upon creation a curse because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And so when you stop and you think about it, um, one little sin caused all the mess we see today. That should cause us to pause every time we're tempted to sin and realize, wow, this is serious stuff. This isn't something that's just you know swept under the rug by God. This sins have... Sin has consequences. Even though our sins are being forgiven, even though they've been paid for by the work of Christ on the cross, as believers, we should never take sins that creep into our lives lightly, thinking, well, it doesn't affect anybody. It's just my little sin. Nobody knows about it. It will affect, and most of all, it affects God. It grieves God's heart. And so it says there that creation was subjected to this curse. And then we looked at how creation was going to be restored 
says in verse 21 of, of Romans 8 there, for the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption. In other words, something's going to set it free. Today, we have a lot of people in our society, environmentalists, that believe somehow the earth is getting better and we have the task of making everything better. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And eventually, it's going to burn up. The only time that creation will be restored is when God, in his sovereign power, restores it. And we're going to look a little bit at that. But it's going to be set free one day from the curse. It is going to be set free by God. And then the last thing we looked at was the pain of creation. It says there that we know that the whole creation, in verse 22, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, up to this point. And when you go out and you look at creation and you realize how beautiful it is, think of what it looked like before the curse. It would have been incredible. It's still beautiful, but it's winding down. It's cursed by God because of sin. And so we saw that creation is groaning. And we talked a little bit about the idea that the earth is going to be renewed. Um, He says here, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And it talks about waiting for this with patience. Um, The Bible clearly teaches us that one day this world and, and the universe literally will be recreated by God. Everything we see around us is going to be wiped out. It's going to be destroyed. Um, The present earth as we know it eventually will be restored. I mean, will be destroyed and then restored by God. It's not going to happen in one big atomic bomb. It's constantly going on. The earth is growing tired. Uh, Revelation... In the book of Revelation, when you look in that that book, it describes various sequence of events that will occur in in the last days that will cause the earth to begin to just literally fall apart. It speaks of the sun being blackened. The moon will become like blood. The stars will fall. The waters of the earth, the Bible says, will be cursed, both the salt and fresh waters. And there'll be death everywhere. This all kind of begins since the curse, but it's going to pick up big time, probably about the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. It says from the midpoint, first three and a half years, after that point in the tribulation, the devastation upon the earth, the destruction of the earth is going to be amped up big time. And God is going to systematically destroy this present universe and all the people who are set against him. That's going to happen. Well, there's also going to be an establishment of the millennial kingdom. All right. After the seven year tribulation, which we will not be here for, I believe we'll be raptured out of here before the tribulation. Praise the Lord. Um, After the tribulation, there will be a a time of a thousand years where Christ 
and saints will rule here on earth, literally. And that's the time when the Bible speaks of the desert blooming like a rose and the lion laying down with the lamb. Okay, it's not the final glorified earth. It's it's just something God is giving us a little glimpse of. And then eventually, at the end of the millennial kingdom, God will create a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21, 1 says. And that will usher in what we know as the eternal state. Where Revelation 22, 3 says there will be no more curse, there will be no more sin. That's when... We will ultimately be, everything will be glorified. Well, creation longs to be loosed from that curse that it's enduring every day. And so do we. And that's going to happen when the tribulation and the millennium are over. And so you have to kind of keep that in mind when you read prophetic scripture. That it's not all referring to the exact same time. Now, Paul here in Romans 8 isn't really referring to any of that. He's just saying generally this is what's going to happen. He's not giving us a lesson in eschatology. He doesn't, he's not concerned with how this is going to happen or when it's going to happen or what's the sequence of things. He's just saying, you know what, this is going to happen. God will restore creation and we will have glorified bodies. And so today we want to look at verse 23, the groan of believers, the groan of believers because we who are saved we who have put our faith and trust in christ now can join together with creation and understand that you know what one day we're going to be freed from this curse one day the curse of sin will no longer be part of us and that's that groaning that word to groan has the idea of of being kind of changed from something that's hard to endure you don't want to be in that, that state. I remember in high school, we had a time in football practice. I don't know if they did it out here. They probably do it out here. They called it Hell Week. And literally, it was hell. I mean, it was horrible. In Pennsylvania, in August, humid, hot. And you had about a week or two of, of what they just drill you and drill you. And you had to do all these things, you know, eight hours a day. And I remember the middle of the week thinking is this ever going to end you know you're throwing up you're getting sick to your stomach everything's just you know it's, it's just a horrible time but it's preparing you for something and so you you hold out hope that hopefully the coach knows what he's doing and eventually you'll have a winning team because you're going through this this hell on earth as we called it well that's what god is doing for us and so we have this groan for a desire to be released from the curse. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 says, We that are in this tabernacle, in this body, do groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. The only way you're going to be glorified is to go through the trial of living here on this earth and one day being freed from this body. One day when you die as a believer pending the Lord's return, your soul goes to be with the Lord. Absent from the body, what? Present with the Lord. But where's your body? In the grave or uh, burnt up or whatever. Um. But one day, that body will be resurrected. 
and rejoined, and you will have a glorified body. Well, the Bible tells us that this adoption that we're talking about here, this process, begins with the adoption. It says, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit of God is the one that's kind of doing this. He's, he's the, the one that's proposing all this. Romans chapter 8 is really showing the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. And so he says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. So you read that and you say, well, wait a minute. What are we waiting for? I thought we were already adopted. When you put your faith, your trust in Christ and the work of Christ on Calvary, your soul was saved. Your soul was redeemed. The Bible says that the old inner man is gone. It's no longer around. Now you have a new inner man. And you're a new creation in Christ, the Bible says. An eternal work has been done in you by God. But you know what? You're still in this body. Your soul has been redeemed. Your soul is the new man. Just because you got saved doesn't mean you have a glorified body. No, you're still trapped in this sinful body. And so that's what he's speaking of here. He says, we're waiting for the adoption. I mean, technically, we've already been adopted, but we haven't entered into that full manifestation. Think about it. If you were in an orphanage and you were going to be adopted and all the paperwork was filled out, we have a family that used to come to Grace. They live on the East Coast now, but they adopted two boys from... uh, um, I don't know if it's the Middle East or Africa. But anyway, they, they adopted two young teenage boys. And I remember when they were going through the process, they kept on saying, yeah, we got through all the paperwork. Everything's done. All we have to do is go pick up the kids. Make this trip over there. And see, it wasn't, it wasn't even though they were adopted, the process wasn't complete yet until they got them home back here in the States and began to live in their home. And so technically we've been adopted, but we haven't entered into that full manifestation of that adoption as of yet. And even though there it says we're already children of God, back in verse 16, when you walk around out there in the world, people don't probably look at you and go, oh, here comes a child of God, look out. No, they, they don't know, right? Because what, what has changed? Your inner, inner being, your soul has changed. Look over at 1 John chapter 3, because this kind of explains it for us in pretty simple terms. 1 John chapter 3. Look at what it says here in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Somebody ought to write a song. Oh, wait, there already is one. So it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, but we will 
be, uh, and what we will be has not yet appeared. See what he's saying? He's saying we're, technically we're God's children now, but we're not fully manifesting that yet. But we know that when he appears, we shall what? Be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, we groan within ourselves as believers because we know that even though we've been adopted, even though technically we're children of God, we have to await for the redemption of our bodies. We have to wait for the glorification of our bodies. I'm having these pains in my um, hands. Like even when I play the piano, I'm both... Right here, the thumbs, you know, just kill me when I play the piano or when I do something on the keyboard. So I made an appointment with Kaiser, with the orthopedic surgeon, next Wednesday. So I don't know what he's going to say, but I thought, well, you know, this is very uncomfortable. It just hurts con- continuously. And I'm thinking, well, there's, there's going to be a day where I'm not going to have to worry about that, right? I mean, there's going to be a day when our bodies are, are glorified to the state where we're not going to have to worry about knee replacements or cancer or anything. We're going to be totally glorified. And that comes when we see Christ. We will be like him. And only then is our adoption complete. Even though it says there we are called the children of God. But we have yet to match our redeemed souls with our redeemed bodies. And that's what we need to understand. That's why in in Romans, go back to Romans chapter 13. Look at Romans chapter 13 verse 11. Look at what Paul writes in verse 11 in Romans 13. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Look at what he says. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What's he saying? That's a reference to the future aspect of our salvation. Salvation, you could kind of say, covers eternity past to eternity future. Because the Bible says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We weren't around before the foundation of the world. That's eternity past. But God had already, in his mind, saved us then. But then we come to a point in time in our life where we hear the gospel when we're here on this earth. And we respond to the gospel. We embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior. We give up our old worthless works and and acknowledge our sinfulness before a holy God and we cling to Christ. And at that point, we are saved. But that salvation is not fully realized until we are, what? Glorified. And that's why it's so important to understand that God is in our salvation from beginning to end. And beginning starts way before you made your profession of Christ. Beginning starts back in eternity past. When you weren't even a glimmer in your parent's eye. God set his love upon you, the Bible says. So it speaks here of this this groaning that, that goes on in our lives. And it really talks about, first of all, not only the believer's adoption, that's going to happen. But also our hope. It talks about the salvation of our bodies. In Romans. One day our bodies will be fully glorified, fully redeemed. 
We have become a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul says, behold, all things have become new. We've become partakers of a new, what the Bible says in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 1.4, a, a new divine nature. We are being made suitable for heaven. But right now, because we're here on this earth, we're held in bondage to this body. If you could get out of this body (laughs) somehow, the only way I know of is to die. As a believer, once you die, you're freed from this body. You're, You're in the presence of the Lord. You're in a glorified state, even though your body's still here. And then your body will be reunited with your soul at the resurrection. And your body will be redeemed. Your body will be renewed. Your body will be glorified. So now we have to contend with the lusts and the desires and the thoughts of our body. And that's what Paul was talking about earlier, previously in Romans, when he talks about, you know what, man, I want to do what's right, but I can't. There's a struggle going on. You know, it's not a struggle between the old man and the new man. Some people teach that, well, you have the old nature and the new nature, and you've got to decide who you're going to listen to. No, the Bible says very clearly the old nature, the old man is dead. It's buried. The struggle is between your new nature and your body <laughs> in this sinful world. That's where the struggle lies. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ and that the body of sin might be destroyed. The old man is who you were before Christ. That's gone. Don't think that you have some kind of a a, uh, uh, dual personality between the old man and the new man. And and boy, you've got to go through the struggle of of thinking who you're going to listen to. No, you're just a glorified being in a fallen body. And that's why Paul says in, in verse 13 of that, that same chapter there in Romans that he says, don't yield your members as instruments to unrighteousness. What is members talking about? Bodily body parts. He's talking about this body. And then in verses 17 and 18, he says, thanks be to God, where we used to be servants of sin, we have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you, being then made free from sin. We became servants or slaves of righteousness. That's what it tells us. And believers, we need to understand that we are not our own. You know, you hear people say, well, don't you think we have rights? No, we don't have any rights. We're servants of Christ. And we need to be reminded of that. Our new nature is free from sin. We've been transformed. But the humanness that possesses us is still the problem. And that's what we want to look forward to, the redeeming of this body. I mean, once the soul's redeemed and the body's glorified, man, that's heaven. That's where we'll be. And that's what Paul says there in in Romans 7. You know, we're not going to read through all that again, but that's what he talks about. He says, I know that in my flesh, in me, dwells no good thing. And he goes on and he explains that. That he wants to serve the law of God. 
not the law of sin. There was a change. He was redeemed, but he still lives in a fallen body. And so when we come to Romans 8.23, that's why we're groaning. We're, we're saying, man, Lord, can we just get rid of this body? If we can get rid of this body, we know that it's going to be all good. Well, what is that body going to be like? The best description is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 35. Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ. He talks about the resurrection of the dead. And then he talks about the resurrected body, what it's going to be like. It doesn't give us a whole lot of information, but between this and some of the gospels, what Jesus did after he was glorified, he was able to eat. People recognized him when he wanted them to recognize him. He was able to walk through doors and things like that. That's kind of neat. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at what he says in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? With what kind of body do they come? And look at what Paul says, you foolish person. (laughs) What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of weed or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. What's he saying? He says, we don't know. We really don't know. If I gave you a handful of seeds, you probably couldn't tell me exactly what each one was. Maybe if you planted them in the ground, and then you let the tree grow, and after a couple years you had fruit, oh, that was... This kind of seed because this kind of fruit. Or was this kind of seed because this kind of flower is producing. He says in verse 39, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another there is one glory of the sun and another glory sun and another glory of the moon another glory of the stars for the stars differ from star in glory and then he says in verse 42 so it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown is perishable what is raised is imperishable that's basically what he tells us it is sown in dishonor it's raised in honor it is sown in weakness it's raised in power It is sown a natural body, but look, it says it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the, what, the man of heaven. 
And then he says in verse 50, just understand your body is not going to heaven. He said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord why Because it's not in vain. Because one day God will do what he said he's going to do. And we will have our redeemed body. And, you know, that's going to be a glorious thing. And I'm kind of eager for that to happen. To be honest, sometimes I get kind of jealous when I know a believer and he dies. Or she dies. Thinking, man, they're they're freed from... Any care or concern that we have down here. They're in the presence of their Lord and Savior. I mean, of course, we're left here to clean up whatever. But, but you know what? They're in the presence of the Lord and Savior. And that's something that we should yearn for. That's something that we should look forward to. That's where this hope comes from in verse 24 and 25. Back to Romans 8. He says, for in this hope, we were what? We were saved. Verse 24. Now, the hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? That'd be kind of silly. If I invite you over for dinner, I'm sitting on the couch saying, man, I hope they get here in time. I hope they get here in time. I hope they get here in time. Pretty soon you knock on the door and you're sitting at the dinner table and I'm still saying, man, I hope they get here on time. That wouldn't make any sense. Why would I be hoping for something that's there? That's what he's saying. So the believer's hope is something that we don't see. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. Look at what it says. With what? With patience. With patience. Do you ever have your patience run out? We all have. We all have. And you know what? Sometimes... That's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing, depending on what you're waiting for. But here it says we have to wait with patience. We have to know that God will be faithful. I mean, when you look at, you know, the wheels are coming off the cart here in the world in which we live. I mean, you got these terrorist things. You got all this stuff going on. That can cause a real fear, a real panic in the hearts of people if you're not careful. But you've got to go back to the fact that, you know what? God sees what's going on. He knows exactly what's happening. He's in control. And we should allow his spirit to be in control because it's through the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. All those things are, are how we need to wait for the redemption of our body.
And that's the hope that in which we were saved. We're saved by faith. Grace through faith. And it's so important that when we think of hope as being an essential part of that salvation. That Greek word there where it says we are saved. It's interesting because it's in the aorist passive tense. And it implies that our salvation, as I said earlier, was planned in the past. It's bestowed in the present. And it gives hope for the future. I mean, you can't separate hope from salvation. If you don't have salvation, I hate to tell you, but you don't have any hope. There's no hope. But when you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and he's made you a new person in Christ, Jesus said himself in John 17, 12, that his father would not lose one. He would not lose one that his father has given to him. All right, there's no such thing as, as starting this process of salvation and then somehow losing your way and losing your salvation. That's heresy. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that if you're saved, you will be saved. You will be glorified because it's God that's doing the work, not you. And that should help us to sleep well at night. And then you have people that say, well, what about, you know, I knew a guy that when I was in high school, man, he was just a Bible-thumping kind of guy, and everybody called him a preacher, and he was really, really, when, today he's not even walking with the Lord. Do you think that he lost his salvation? No, he never had it. Never had it. Just because you're thumping a Bible, just because you're living a, a life that looks righteous on the outside, that doesn't mean you're saved. The Bible says that as Christians, we need to what? Make sure of our salvation. That we need to persevere. He who endures to the end will be saved, the Bible says. So it's important that we understand that even though God is doing this work in our hearts and in our lives, that doesn't mean we just take, you know, Chase Lounge on Easy Street and sit back and kick around until the Lord comes back. No. We have to do our due diligence in living a life that's honoring to him. Everyone who comes to Christ is secure in Christ. And we're saved not only to experience the immediate redemption of our bodies, but also to have that hope for future salvation of our bodies. Um, over in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, 19... It says this, God willing, God willingly more abundantly to show onto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. First Thessalonians, Paul in chapter 5, verse 8, refers to the believer's helmet as the hope of what? Salvation. The hope of salvation. I'm always disturbed when I run into Christians who are uncertain. They're unsecure, insecure in their salvation. They're constantly worrying about whether they're saved or not. 
And people that have that idea that somehow you can gain your salvation, then you can lose your salvation, and then you can gain your salvation, they don't have a biblical understanding of what salvation is. They really don't. And today, unfortunately, in many churches, the gospel has been cheapened, has been lowered down to the bottom shelf. And basically, if you say that Jesus is your Lord, then you're saved. It's very important that we realize that salvation is something that God does for us. And he is the one who does it. You stop and you ask, well, what about the people that think you can lose your salvation? They may even be a Christian. But you know what? Just because they think they can lose their salvation doesn't mean they can. <laughs> because God's word trumps what they think. Just like it trumps what we think or how we feel. Are there days, to be honest, when I don't feel saved? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. That doesn't make it so. If you're truly saved, you are saved in hope. A person's salvation is not real unless it has that future fulfillment. Remember what we said a couple weeks ago. Salvation without glorification is not salvation. Salvation is only realized when we are glorified in eternity future. And so he says here that this hope is something that's an unseen reality. Reminded of Paul, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will what? Will be faithful to perform it. He will be faithful. That's being confident of who you are in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13 says, Gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, get your thoughts together. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Live in that constant anticipation. Lord, is it going to be today? Maybe it's going to be tonight. You're going to come for me. Or I'm going to go to you. But he knows when. We need to long for that redeeming of our, our bodies. And that's what the Spirit tells us to do here. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul says, We remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus. Christian is not a, somebody who's constantly running around thinking horrible thoughts. No, we have hopeful thoughts. We should understand that what we're waiting for will one day come to pass. Well, he also says here, not only does the believer groan, we'll see if we can get through verse 26 and 27, but also the Spirit. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
So we have creation groaning, we have believers groaning, and now we have the Holy Spirit groaning. And they're all groaning for the same thing. The ultimate glorification of everything that we know to be true. He joins, the Spirit joins in creation and believers here in really moaning or groaning over the fallen state that we find ourselves in. He really wants us to be revealed as sons of God. That's why Paul, in Romans 7, verse 24, he groans and he says, Man, how how wretched am I? Who shall deliver me, what, from this body of death? And now the Holy Spirit groans within us, in a, within us because he totally understands. He totally gets it. Now, I want to say something here that, that people need to understand. I don't know where you're at on this issue, but this is very clear. In verse 26, when it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is not talking about what the modern-day charismatic movement would call the gift of tongues. That has, has nothing to do with this passage. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Some charismatics say, well, see, this is the gift of, of tongues because, you know, we, we can't pray as we ought. And, and so if you just start jibber-jabbering, and, and, and then that's the gift of tongues. What's ironic is when you talk about the gift of tongues that's in the modern-day charismatic movement, what's interesting to me is that people of different faiths have the gift of tongues. You have Hindu people that speak in the gift of tongues. You have people that do not serve the God of the Bible speaking in the gift of tongues. And you have to stop and you have to go back to Corinthians. And that's not our point here this morning. But you have to understand what that gift was. That gift clearly was a language. It had to be a language. All you have to do is read the context in Corinthians and Acts where that gift was played out. They were speaking in a language that could be understood. It wasn't some, it wasn't that. That's not what the gift of tongues is. But unfortunately, many in the charismatic movement today believe that's exactly what the gift of tongues is. And that's what they practice. And that's not of God. Personally, I think a lot of it's psychosomatic. I think that they're taught how to do that. I've been in churches where they take you to the little prayer room and tell you, just let your, just, just let your mind go free. Just let your tongue, just, 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 just start to talk like a baby. That's what they do. And under the pressure of their influence, people begin to do just that. And it's unfortunate. Because it's, it's erroneous teaching. And then people begin to seek an experience rather than the truth of what God's word says.
clearly understand here that the Holy Spirit, here in in Romans 8, verse 26, it's the Holy Spirit who is speaking. (laughs) It's the Holy Spirit who is praying. It's not people. It's not talking about the gift of tongues. It's not talking about people having the gift of tongues. And even if it was, it says, you know what? The Holy Spirit does this with groanings that cannot be what? Uttered. In other words, nothing. I think about that and I think of our brother Jerry when he, when he was in the fellowship hall. And people were, and he had his mini stroke and everybody's concerned. Are oh, you doing okay? He couldn't talk. Could not, he could not talk. He couldn't utter a word at a certain point. And so the, the Spirit doesn't really speak. It says here, the groanings he emits cannot be uttered. Nothing in the context is related to the issue of speaking in languages, tongues, In verse 26, it begins there, likewise. In other words, he's saying, just as creation groaned, just as believers groaned, well, you know what? The Holy Spirit groans. The Holy Spirit wants us to get rid of our sin just as much as we do. That's why he convicts us of it. Well, he intercedes, it says here in verse 26, that the Holy Spirit's ongoing work in us is to intercede. We know that our salvation is eternal, but we have to be kept saved, 1 Peter 1.5. That's a divine work of the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Spirit works with Christ to keep us saved. He intercedes for us. While it's true that salvation is eternal, beloved, it's still carried out by the Son's intercession. You can't separate God's plan from the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. It's all together. The Lord said that he would pray that Peter's faith would what? Remain. Remember that? Would God answer that prayer? Jesus predicted he would, saying to Peter, when... You are converted when you've overcome the trial. Strengthen the brethren, he says. See, God has already planned for the believer's security. And it's the Son and the Spirit's job to carry out that security. That's why 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a constant interceding on our behalf. We don't just get saved, all our sins are forgiven, and then live perfect lives. No, God continues to intercede in our lives. You say, well, can't we pray for ourselves? Well, you can try. But the problem is, we don't know exactly what God's will is. We struggle with sin. We struggle with our flesh. We don't know what the future holds. Only the Lord knows when something will happen to us. Just as he knew that Peter was about to be tested, Peter had no clue. Peter didn't know what was going to happen. 
He could have walked blindly into a trial and been overcome by it. So the Lord prayed for Peter even before the trial occurred. So the Savior and the Spirit intercede for us because, you know what, we can't maintain our own redemption. The Spirit helps, he says here, our weaknesses. He doesn't just help us in our our weak prayers. He helps us in our, our mortal, sinful state. Peter was safe because Christ prayed for him. We should be grateful that Christ also prays for us. He helps us in our weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Christ is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto him by God, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. What does it mean to be saved to the uttermost? It means, it means to be saved completely. From salvation to glorification. That's something that God will do. And so the Spirit here is interceding for us. The Spirit himself, it says, makes intercession for us. That word intercession is the the same one used in in the verse in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 we read. In reference to Christ. We can't pray for ourselves effectively because we don't know how to understand what God's will is for us. And so the Spirit, the Bible says, intercedes for us. See, that's why we should have a kind of a kindred spirit with Paul. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, I have learned in whatever state I am, whatever state I am, to be what? To be content. Why, why would you say that? What if you're going through a hard time? Well, you know what? God knows you're going through a hard time. What if you're uncertain about the future? God knows what your future will hold. He'll give you the grace to do it, to deal with it. But we don't really know how to pray for ourselves because we don't know what our future holds. When we suffer, we pray, Lord, get me out of the suffering. Take this away. I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. Well, maybe God's saying, no, I'm going to leave you in that because I'm trying to teach you something. And the quicker you learn what I'm trying to teach you, the quicker the suffering goes away. It's really a divine rescue mission. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. That word intercession is a multiple word. It speaks of rescuing someone in trouble who has no resources to escape. See, Satan knows that we're kept by the power of Christ. We're kept by the power of the Spirit. And what does he do? He wars against their power with all the hosts of hell in an attempt to kind of debilitate their work in keeping us. You're right, he can't. But he doesn't understand that. See, don't think that that Christ is in heaven just sitting back watching everything fall into place. That's not what the Bible says. It says that he is continuously working to uphold all things. And the Spirit of God is not just sitting around either. He's constantly making intercession for us. He helps us in our prayers. And it brings sure results. 
because no believer will ever be lost to God. In other words, the Spirit in Christ will ultimately secure us for glorification one day. He says he searches the hearts. He who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We don't understand what the will of God is. I mean, you may understand what the written will of God is. But when you get down to, well, should I take this job or not? (laughs) Well, I mean, you can hopefully use Scripture to discern that, the circumstances. But, you know, we don't need to be waiting around for God to whisper in our ear, take it, take it, take it. Not going to happen. So we need to be clear about that. And so we we don't really know what, what God's will is. And so the Spirit intercedes for us, he says. For the saints according to the will of God. And it's something that is ongoing. It's, it doesn't stop. It's, it's a process that continues until we're glorified. It doesn't give up. See, when you're sealed with the Spirit... Of God. That means God's purpose in salvation can never, ever be changed. That's the seal of our security. See, this should give us hope. This should give us assurance that, you know what? Not only is Christ interceding on our behalf, the Holy Spirit of God is interceding on our behalf. And we need to understand that it's the Spirit here who is doing this work to bring us to make sure that one day that we will be in that glorified state. There's no doubt in anybody's mind in the Trinity who will be saved and who will not. Those who have put their faith, their trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior are those he intercedes for. And the Holy Spirit himself prays for God's will. That's the trinity of God, the perfect trinity working together for our betterment, for our ultimate glorification. And then next week we'll look at the idea that, you know what, and God knows everything. <laughs> He's working all this together. He's working all this big mess down here on earth together for his glory. And one day he will bring it to pass. And we can rest assured in that fact. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that these three groans of glory, creation, believers, and the Holy Spirit are groans for us to be freed from this body of sin and death. That one day, Lord, that we will stand in your presence. And one day... We'll stand in your presence in a glorified body. We'll be free from the pain, the tears, the heartache, the problems of this world. And Lord, forever and all eternity, we will be in your presence. Lord, I pray today, if anyone here is struggling with the assurance of their own salvation, Lord, I I pray first of all that they'll look at the basic facts in their life. Have you changed their life? Are they holding on to something that is legitimate 
There's many who are going to stand before you one day and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? Haven't we gone to church? Haven't we read our Bibles? Haven't we healed the sick? Haven't we? And he's going to say, see you later. I don't even know who you are. That's why we don't base our salvation on an experience. But we base it on a fact that, you know what? Yes, I've trusted in Christ for my salvation. And yes, he has changed me. He's transformed me. There's a new person that I am. The old is passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That doesn't mean you live a perfect Christian life. That simply means that you have seen a dynamic change in your life. And that within your heart of hearts, you desire to do and to serve Christ and God and his word. Yeah, you still struggle with sin. Because you're still holding on to this body. And Lord, we, we long for the day when we're freed of this body and we can be in your presence forever. Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, to leave their life of works, their life of self-righteousness, and come before a holy God and admit before a holy God that they are indeed a sinner and they need salvation, they need a Savior, and Christ is the only Savior that is available. I pray that you would do that work in their heart, that you would draw them to yourself. And as believers, as we leave this place and walk out into this sin-stained, dying world, that we would have on our lips a message of hope, a message of salvation, a message of freedom from sin and guilt and pain. And that's only available through Christ. I pray that we would proclaim the gospel boldly to a lost and dying world. We pray, Lord, as we approach Thanksgiving this coming week, Lord, that you would just prepare us for our times together as family and friends. Father, I pray that you would prepare our our families as we gather, Lord. Sometimes this time of year can be hard, can be difficult. I pray as Christians that we would be filled with your spirit, that we would speak words of truth, Words that will bring comfort to people. Father, I pray that you would use our times together as family and friends, Lord, to honor you. And we are thankful for our salvation. We're thankful for this country we live in. We pray for our leaders, our president, vice president, Congress. Pray for all them, that you would give them wisdom in these times. Lord, help them to see that you are the only hope. You're the only way out of this mess. And we just pray, Lord, that you would speak that truth to our hearts. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.